This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrack, and today I'm joined by a pretty exemplary woman, and that's award-winning journalist and anchor Farah Nasser. I've interviewed many broadcasters, hosts, anchors, and reporters on this program, everyone from Joan London to Jeannie Becker. And while all on-camera people have a certain presence, as it were, what struck me about Farah from the very beginning was this huge likability and relatability factor and great humanity. It's almost as if she's talking to you when she's on camera and you feel that security and trust that you're in very good hands, allowing you to become totally engaged with the newscast. I don't know how to say it any other way, but I feel engaged when I watch her. And I know that many Canadians and many Canadians listening feel the same way too. Before we meet Farah, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Farah Nasser is an award-winning journalist who brings extensive experience to her role as anchor of Global National, Global's flagship national evening newscast on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, as well as many global news specials. With over two decades of experience, she has reported on major events such as the death of Queen Elizabeth II from London, Joe Biden's election win from Washington, the London, Ontario terror attack that killed a Muslim family, and the Toronto van attack. She was the first journalist to be granted a one-on-one with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when the country reopened after the pandemic lockdown in 2020. And she has moderated key political debates. In fact, as she has said, elections are like her Oscars. She is considered to be a trailblazer for being one of the first Canadian television journalists to challenge the status quo in her reporting on race and equity, spearheading that incredible global news series, hashtag first time I was called, the television special Living in Colour, Being Black in Canada, which won an Edward R. Murrow Award, and the History Channel's four-part special, Canada Uncovered, which investigated past experiences of marginalized peoples. Nasser is also a back-to-back winner of the RTNDA Sam Ross Award for her viral commentaries, 93 Killed a Day at the Barrel of a Gun, that was 2018, and What if the Fighting in Aleppo was Happening in Toronto, 2017, which was viewed 3.5 million times and used as a teaching aid in schools to explain the Syrian conflict. Nasser began her career at Rogers TV and has held various roles with News Talk 1010, Toronto One, A Channel News, City TV, CP24, before joining Global News, and of course, which was uh, started off local and then became national. She's a graduate of Toronto Metropolitan University. She also attended the University of Westminster in London, England, and she even interned for CNN in New Delhi, India. When not reporting on the day's headlines, Nasser spends her time volunteering in the community, passionate about championing the rights of women and girls. She is the celebrated ambassador for Plan Canada and 
a member of the International Women's Forum, an invitation-only network of the most accomplished women in the world. She also sits on the board of directors for the Canadian Journalism Foundation and serves as a mentor for the Canadian Association of Journalists and for Civic Action, a nonprofit that brings together senior and emerging leaders from diverse backgrounds. A sought-after speaker, Dasser delivered the popular TEDx talk, The Power of Intellectual Humility, which I loved, and I encourage you all to listen to it. It's excellent. Farah regularly speaks at community events and has worked with organizations such as Journalists for Human Rights, the Aga Khan Foundation, and the Economic Club of Canada. Nasser lives in Canada with her husband and two children. She has a passion for traveling, has instilled that as well in her children, taking her young family to several regions in North and South America, Asia, and Europe. Farah Nasser, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. It's a real honor to have oh, you here. Thank you. And thanks for the, the kind words you said off the top. Honestly, I was I had goosebumps and, and felt like tears in my eyes, because that is just the biggest compliment, like to be authentic and for people to trust you and, and feel like safe. And when you're speaking to them and that you're, you're coming from a place of, you know, a genuine place, like that is the best compliment I could ever get. So thank you. I love that. I love Farah that you have loved news since you were little, something that you shared with your dad who also loved news. And in fact, I read that you would clip newspaper articles and bring them to your classmates to talk about the news stories as a young girl. Can you tell us what was it about news that you were so passionate about from the very beginning? I think it was just a way to understand the world and understand people. And, you know, I had this dad who was just so interested in, in explaining to us how government functioned and how democracy worked coming from a place where my, my parents are from East Africa. And there was a big exodus in Uganda because, you know, there was a dictator that took over there at the time. And uh, so just to, to talk about democracy, essentially. And so I had a dad who was so interested in the news and current events and what's happening about the world and how we're just like this little dot in this great big planet. And yes. um, then I had this mom who just loved to interview people, like just talk to people. And it, she was just this kind of person who somebody like I feel Judy, you're probably like this, where, you know, you meet somebody, and they just tell you everything about them and your story. And that was my mom. And she just thought it was, she thought, people were resources for information. So instead of library books, like she loved conversations. So I learned so much from her and she was very open with my brother and I, when we were young about different struggles, like what it was like to be Muslim and gay, her best friend, or, you know, what it was like to be black in Canada and, and things like that. And we, I think had those kind of conversations at an early age and coupled with my dad's passion for the news and, and that way of connecting with him, it was just something that really was interesting to me, all of it. So a lot of it comes almost naturally to you. Totally. This, you, you. This was not only your calling, but it was fostered and bred. And, and when it came to think about what you were going to do for the rest of your life, your parents, I think, wanted you to be a doctor and were surprised when you expressed an interest in broadcast journalism. And I read that it took a guidance counselor to speak to your father and tell him that you were gifted as a communicator and broadcaster. This was your calling and that you were a natural and it worked. They did convince him. And yet, even getting into Ryerson initially wasn't that easy, which I can't believe. And you had to keep going back with demo reels, demo tapes, and different sort of uh, Hazel McCallum's <laughs> testimonial to try to, to get in there. And finally, they said, okay, how did you feel when you got that acceptance? And can you tell us about your time at Ryerson, now called Toronto Metropolitan? Yeah, I mean, it was it was so... 
you know, I remember walking into the interview and thinking like, I got this. I'm already volunteering at Rogers. I'm on air. Like they'll give me this job. <laughs> and it was just this amazing experience because I got, I really got a big, huge, giant helping of humble pie. Like it was, it was this like, okay, no, you don't have this. And I always try to look at the positive of situations. And, and so I was upset for a while, but then once I eventually got in, I said, this is the way it was supposed to be. I was supposed to not get in and now I got in because now I appreciate it so much more. Maybe if I'd gotten in, I would have just taken it for granted. And I didn't, I mean, that first year I remember, like I didn't just do interviews. I like, I wanted to do the best interviews at my first, we'd had to do a radio documentary and, you know, people picked just random friends that they had, or was you know not <laughs> not going kind of out there and really putting themselves out there. And I remember calling Ernst Zundel this Holocaust denier because I wanted to have an argument wow. with him, and I wanted to I wanted to go to his place and I wanted to learn about why he was saying the Holocaust didn't uh. happen. So I remember calling him from the phone book out of the blue and being like, "I want uh. I want to interview you," and he lived walking distance from campus in this like bunker style place. And, um, <laughs> I went by my, I can't, I still can't believe I went in by myself. Oh my and, I had, yeah. <laughs> and I, and there was all these like people there that were very, very, you know, now I look back, like, I, I'm sure I was frightened then, but now I'm now with the way the world is, you know, I should be much more frightened. And <laughs> I remember going toe to toe with him and having this big argument and, and wow. juxtaposing what he was saying with facts. And I did this, yes. I, I wonder where it is, this radio doc. Oh, wow. I had a bunch of Jewish classmates in my cohort and they were all like brought to tears because it was such an emotional thing. And then it led to this big conversation and it was, it was just a incredible experience to try to, yeah, to be able to cover news in that way. Wow. 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 And so I think your professors must've realized early on this girl, this young girl is, is headed for something. Did you have a sense at the time that this is what you were going to do with the rest of your life in a significant way, not just in a yeah. I think yeah, that I think that documentary, that radio doc, kind of opened things up for me. But I was also working overnights at CFRB ten ten on radio. Yes, and I was uh, I was also working at a Toronto <laughs> radio station and um, overnight doing the news. And I my shift was midnight to six a.m. And I remember. Oh like every newscast, like giving it as if like the whole city was listening to me. And um, I remember a professor saying like, how do you get the energy to do that? But to me, it was like, well, this is such a responsibility. Like I'm anchoring the news that like what I am. And there's like people who are awake and they could be hearing this and I have to, you know, so I took it very, very seriously. I think even at the time, people in that newsroom respected you and came to you for advice. And even though you were a young student, just sort of learning it all, they were coming to you with respect, which is a phenomenal, must have been a phenomenal feeling for you. It was, especially after 9-11, when people didn't know much about Muslims. And they were asking me all these questions. And I I was, I, you know, embarrassed to say now, I didn't know much about my religion either. I knew some stuff, but I wasn't, you know some of the stuff they were asking me, I was forced to kind of go home and ask my dad and be like, what is this? What happened here? What are the differences between these sects? And so I was trying to, I was learning as well about my identity because when you're early twenties, I mean, I was 21 when 9-11 happened. So you're also kind of understanding yourself a bit more. And then you're asked to be an expert on this because there's nobody else in that newsroom that looks like me or sounds like me or has my name or has an ethnic name. So, um, 
yeah, it was, it was a very educational experience. That's so awesome. So I, I talked about CFRB and I know, okay, so as we mentioned off the top in the green room, on-air journalist Naomi Parnas, who's been on the show, is one of your best friends. And I know she loves you. And I just want to tell our audience that she said, and I quote, she's my person. We just get each other. She's the type of person you can talk to about anything and everything. And what I found fascinating is that you started off as competitors in journalism school because you both were interested in hard news and everyone else was interested in other things. And then during one of the summer breaks, you went to India to intern for CNN. She went to CBS in New York. And when you both came home, you bonded like crazy, evidently, and spoke one day for 20 hours straight. And that was the turning point. You became best friends for life. Can you tell me about you and your best friend, Naomi Parnas, who I think at the beginning was like a running mate, but has become one of your best yeah, friends? Yeah, yeah, certainly was a running mate. I mean, we were we were competing for so many jobs and so many opportunities in school. And um, it's amazing because she's my biggest cheerleader now and biggest champion, and I'm hers. Like, it's ah. it's... Oh, we have such an interesting relationship. I mean, she's Jewish, I'm Muslim. So we have, we've had very similar upbringings though here in Toronto and very <laughs> similar families that are very supportive of us. But we're able to talk about a lot of things with, with kind of an open mind and an understanding to each other. And I think we both are similar in the fact that we're real, we're authentic. Yeah. Even when it's like, even when it's ugly, we're, we're real. Like I'm yes. not, I'm not afraid to kind of put myself out there and be vulnerable. And she is like the definition of that. <laughs> so I think we, we really bond in that way because I think we're too lazy to be any other way in terms of being fake and having a facade. <laughs> we both just are like, that's too much work. So we're just, we're just each other. And, and, you know, we talk on the phone an excessive amount. I mean, <laughs> I was like, is it Naomi again? My kids are like, I always call it mom, you know, like it's just this thing. But, um, yeah, she's one of the closest uh, people to me. And in a way, she's my soulmate. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Mm, I love lucky. that. I really love that. That's really incredible. I also loved reading about, and I'm just wondering what a profound moment it was. So your father used to take the Bloor subway line and stop at every station with his brother trying to find a job when he first came to Canada. And your father was an engineer mm -hmm. in his homeland. So imagine this, and it wasn't easy. And now suddenly you're going to be on the global newscast, which I'm going to get to in a moment, but you're appearing all over the city on massive billboards and bus stops. And you were everywhere, mm -hmm. all up and down the line where you went. They were launching a rebranded supper time news show on global television at 5 30 and 6 p.m which you were co-anchoring with alan carter what was that moment like for your father and you going on that subway and for him to see all of this i can't imagine what that must have felt like for him and also for you yeah i mean i think he just was in disbelief like he just still to this day says to me and my brother is also a journalist in the states and, and very successful and so he he says to me like all the time that he just, he, he just, he's like, I don't even know. We didn't know what we were doing. Like, I, I don't even know how this happened. Like, he's just so, there was no kind of thought about it. It was just, I think it was just, it's his natural cure. He's such a curious person that I think we just are like that too. And it, it, things just, yes. I think my parents accidentally raised us to be journalists and a lot of <laughs> lucky timing things happen. And, and anyway, it's, it's all that, together. So I think he's just still in awe that this is happening. Like he still takes photos of me to this day, <laughs> like every day, every time I'm on TV and he'll send them, send them to our family group chat, 
who are, I'm sure, sick of it. But, um, you know, our extended <laughs> family, everybody gets like a photo of what I look like every day, what I'm covering. Um, and he's just so proud. And that's everything to me. Like, that is just everything to me. For somebody who didn't have, they didn't have money, they didn't have anything enough. They had to walk to the grocery store in the snow, get groceries. They'd never seen snow before. Like, all that kind of the racism they face. You know, my dad told me recently yes. about his first job. Like, they didn't even, he was surveying up north somewhere, and then they didn't even pay him you know, like a new immigrant, oh like, God. you know, and, and so Horrible. all these things that I'm sure immigrants right now go through, but to have that change yes. in one generation, you know, is, wow. Wow. is incredible. Like, and, and it's a testament to their hard work and their sacrifice. Yeah. Does that land for you in a deep place? Yeah, it absolutely does because it's, yeah. I mean, I think they, they didn't realize what was going to happen. And, and I guess I didn't either. Like I grew up, my parents second mortgaged the house to send my brother and I to private school because they wanted us to have the best education possible. And they didn't have like, you know, they had secondhand furniture and secondhand cars and they had winter vacations. And it was like, we didn't have money. And so to see that all happen and not appreciate it at the time, obviously, because I was in a private school where people were very wealthy and this was my family who was totally different. And to think that I'll never get to that level. Like I'm all, like, I guess in your head, when you're a kid, you just think you're just going to, this is how it is. It's how our family is. It's how my family's going to be. Like, it doesn't, didn't even yes. occur to me like that, that could, that things could change. And, and to see that and to have, and, and to understand like the, the never ending sacrifices my parents made for us. And, wow. you know, they put us in ex- every extracurricular under the sun. They wanted us to be so <laughs> Canadian, learn skiing, do all that stuff. Uh, and that's so awesome. Yeah. And yet I bet you must have felt a bit of a dichotomy mm-hmm. to be in school and to be not like all the other kids. There might've been a few kids that look like you, but you were not mm-hmm. the majority. So you wanted to fit into that, but then you'd go home to your cozy, comforting, Community, yeah, and community, which yeah. is the food and culture and everything that mm-hmm. feels comfy and good. Was that hard to to put those two together? That dichotomy. How did you blend all of that? That must have been difficult. It was really hard, especially as a teenager, right? When you have these values that you're supposed to, you know, going to mosque, how you dress, like all this kind of stuff. Right. Like that was really challenging. Yes. And it's funny. I told my mom, like, you know, I used to change at school. You know, you guys used to drive me to the library and I'd go to the movies, right? And she's like, yeah, I knew, I knew like, like, you know, she's like, I knew, I knew that. And I'm like, hey, your mother is so cool. Like, what a cool person. Right? Eh? To and, not like, oh, wow. I don't think my dad knew, to be honest, but my mom knew all of it. You know, she grew up here. Oh, she, kinda, my God. she got that. Or she moved here when she was really, really young in her late teens. And so she kind of understood. And she's like, listen, you're going to live your life. You're going to make your mistakes. You're going to do your thing. And, you know, for example, like dances were on Friday nights, but Fridays are holy night where we have to put a mask. And so, you know, I would change in my friend's car and then go to the party <laughs> after. And, you know, my mom's like, oh my as long God. as you came to mosque, I didn't really care. Yeah. You know, you do your thing. <laughs> So, That's right. Mosque and then party. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like Friday night dinner and like clubbing clothes, you know? So you're just like, but I did it. Wow. And and I think, I think there was that under, I think I was very lucky to have a mom. I like, I didn't know she knew, but I knew that I wouldn't get in huge trouble from her either. So that was very helpful yeah. to have that. Wow. That's actually so, so incredible. So you have a beautiful family now, a son and a daughter when you started the position at Global, the, the local newscast anchoring the news, you were pregnant, so you only worked a few months before Matt leave, and you were pregnant with twin boys, Kian and Hussein. And tragically, you found out that one of your twins, Hussein, was a stillborn birth mm-hmm. at uh, 24 weeks, 
and you had to wait and deliver both babies. And first of all, I just want to say, I'm so sorry for this tragic loss because something like this never goes away. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's being married to a fertility doctor. I just really get this. And um, so I am so sorry for the loss of your beloved son, Hussein. And I'm just wondering if you can take us back to that time and talk about how, even though you were on medication for postpartum depression therapy, what ultimately helped you the most you've written was group therapy, talking to like-minded moms mm-hmm. who experienced similarly devastating losses to you. Yeah, it, it's amazing how, what perspective can do. Mm-hmm. And look, I still, to this day, struggle with my loss. I'm still in therapy. I, I've done a lot of work on this and, and I'm able to talk about it now. But it's also also knowing that you're not alone in, in how you're feeling and that you have permission to feel how you're feeling is such a, such a big thing. And, and, you know, like you were, you're, you're married to a fertility doctor. I remember this one story of this woman who they, and this is when they, there was no free fertility treatment for your first treatment. So they had saved everything they could. If they were an older couple to get a baby, to have a baby, they had it, it worked their first chance. It all worked. And then the baby was born. Like it was a stillborn baby. And I think about that woman all the time. Like all they wanted were kids or new immigrants to Canada. They had worked so hard and it just, I still Terrible. think, you know, it, it, it breaks my heart. Having said that, like it's still, it, my situation was very different because I have this living reminder of my son who had passed away every day. You know, I see him in his brother, yes. you know, and, and so it's hard. It's still hard. It's still something I live with. And yeah. Um, something my kids still struggle with because I always told them from the beginning that they had a brother. I didn't want it to ever be like a shock, that. you know, yes. and I wanted them to come to terms with death. And, and so that's, it's been, a, it's been a struggle for them in terms of that, but at least they kind of understand that there's, there's something else out there and I'm very spiritual. So to me, they, I see Hussein as like watching us and, you know, taking care of our family. And, and I feel like they do too, in a way like they see it. Wow. That's so wonderful that you've incorporated him into your life because you know that a soul never goes away and, and, and he's there, maybe not physically in body, but but in spirit. Right. And there's a presence there for me. Wow. I think that's, that's really quite remarkable. And you're helping so many people by talking about this and by sharing this because it's kind of these, again, one of these taboo things that you just don't talk about. What ultimately do you think helped you get over this tragedy? Not, not that you're ever over no, it, but no, cope but with it. it. I think it was, it's just been the past couple of years, to be honest, because I think, um, I think I was blaming myself for the death for a long, long, long time. Cause I worked, I worked, I was working on a morning show, it was a, it was tough being pregnant and having to be at work at three o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, you don't sleep well at night. And then I just generally, and somebody who can't sit still, who runs around a lot and just is involved in every little thing. And, and so I think all of that stuff made me blame myself. And so, but I eventually, I did a lot of therapy and the modality that I really like is called EMDR and it helps, um, it really got me into my brain and helped me rethink that time in my life. Like, yes, you know, instead of having blame and shame associated with it, I realized like I was doing the best at what, with what I could at that time. And, yes. um, and yeah, and some things are just meant to happen a certain way. And I, I've kind of come to terms with that. I mean, obviously I, I fantasize about Hussein being here all the time, but wow. you know, that'll never go away. But, but I also am like, this is the reality and, and this is what I can do with this reality. If I can help people 
who've been through it or who are going to go through it, you know, I can, I can do that. Wow. 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 I'm, I, I'm, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Really. I am. It's a, uh, it's something that I know doesn't go away and, and it's something that you have to learn how to, how to live with. I also feel like we can do better with mental health in this country. What are your thoughts on how we can achieve this? Like, where are we at right now? Sometimes I feel like, are, are we back in like the dark ages? Like, why are we not able to? You know, I, I, I think we need to have universal mental health care. I think that would change. I, and I think we need to look at the career, careers of like psychotherapists and psychologists, and we need to almost put them on a pedestal because it's really hard work that they do. We need to get more people into that field. We need to encourage more people because yes. I think when you look at so many different things, like when you think of homelessness, when you think about burnout at work, when you think about child rearing, when you think about, there's so many things that are connected to how you were raised, your background, your mental struggles, stuff you don't even know is going on in your body. And, you know, we talk about, they're they're talking about universal dental health care. And to me, I'm like, mental health care is more (laughs) important than anything. Like, it's like, it is such an important aspect because it, it, it permeates everything in our society. Absolutely. You know, when you talk about- and there's still, I was going to say, there's still a stigma about so much of mental health. That's the biggest thing is how do we get over that stigma word? Yeah. And, and it's like, I think, I think the pandemic really helped that in terms of, because people that hadn't gone through stuff went through stuff at that time. And I think they realized mm-hmm. that this is real. Like depression is real. Anxiety is mm-hmm. real. You know, I think we all felt yes. it to, to an extent, but could you imagine a world where people could actually go back, explore their traumas, figure out what is stopping them from being successful, being good parents to their children. Unlike their parents were breaking cycles like that of bad parenting. Imagine our teachers, imagine our police officers, imagine our, you know, imagine that world. It permeates everything. It permeates everything. And I think like we don't, we just don't give it enough attention. And I think if we, if we Mm. do, I think we would be in a totally different world. I think people would say, climate change different. I think people would see everything in a different way. Immigration, like all these big, heavy topics that are weighing on our world. I think we would all see it in a different way. So true. How do we make it happen? What's one one small step we can take? We're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll find out more about how we can make it happen. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Hi, we are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio. And just before the break, I was asking you, Farah, how we can get over the stigma around mental health. I think politicians need to start. I think that's the way. I think it's. I think we need to like lobby politicians to like really have this in mind. And I think we need to. Mm-hmm. I mean, we 
at our school, um, my kids go to an independent school. So this was a lot easier than it would be in the public school system. But I mean, we really lobbied to have somebody whose job it is to handle <laughs> mental health care with children after the pandemic. Wow. And that's wow. their only wow. job. And so their wow. kids, like, it's like having a therapist at school. Like, it's like, you know, if they need anything, awesome. it's just because we know that it's not just what we're seeing on the surface. There's so many layers under it, especially for kids who can't express things. So, you know, that, that kind Absolutely. of thing is so important. Brilliant. I'm so glad you said all this. It's just brilliant stuff. I couldn't help tear up when I watched the farewell Farah segment where you said goodbye to your local newscast on Global before your move to Global National as a weekend anchor, especially when you were saying goodbye to your colleague, Alan Carter. And of course, uh, the big surprise when Susan Hay came out to join you, she's been on our show as well. And they were all tearing up, as was I when I was watching, because you have that kind of effect on an audience. And I'm just wanting you to tell us more about what it was like that first time to say goodbye, even though I know you were just going down the yeah. hall, but it was seven years with these people yes. and they were like family, right? Yeah. Alan especially is like, he was my work husband in every sense of the word. Like he just, <laughs> oh, just such a big support. He was the guy that like, I would just be like, okay, this is happening. What do I do? What do we do about this? What are we going to like? Just, <laughs> we so, well. so many co-anchors don't like each other. And he was just, he's one of my favorite people like on earth. And so, and he has a similar wow. personality, funny enough to my actual husband at home. So it was like, I knew that I <laughs> so could say the opinion from both of them, whatever I would talk, they would like, and they got along. But it, it just, it was like, it, that was very hard because it was really like a family and global as wow. opposed to anywhere else I've ever worked. Cause I worked at all the stations. It is like, they care so much about you as a person, you know, yes. what, what yes. makes you, you as an individual, like my interview, when I first started at global, one of the questions was what causes are important to you that you want us to get behind, you know, can you imagine like, that's how they fabulous. And yeah, I do see them, but it's just, it's still not the same. It's like, you're in a, you're in a different different department right yeah. so it's yeah yeah um yeah but yeah I, I became very very close to to the to my colleagues and and uh it's not it's not the same seeing them in the, in the makeup room now but it's um I think we did a lot I think we changed I mean how coverage was in Toronto like they there was no there were no mainstream shows where they tackled big topics like race hmm. you know like immigration like th things that were kind of more heavy and this this newscast gave me permission to do that. And I think I'm, wow. I'm, I'm so grateful. I think it really shaped who I am as a journalist. That's so awesome. Well, when, when you write the book, there's going to be a really good chapter about the local Yeah, for sure. For right? For sure. So now global national beckons you. And this is big stuff. Like this is not, not everybody gets this chance. Mm -hmm. There's a handful, mm -hmm. right? The Barbara Frums and the, there's a handful of people that get this. They wanted you to be the weekend anchor on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. Can you take us back to how you found out what was involved in the audition process and the whole trajectory? Because this is heady stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it was something that I was doing Fridays already because I they knew that I wanted to, well, we, we had both talked even before that a while ago about moving from local to national, like years before, and we're trying to find a way to make it happen. And then eventually I was doing the Fridays, but to take over the weekend gig was something else. And it was yeah. challenging because it's, it's like, you want this career, but then you have a family and it's like, am I really going to give up weekends? But you're right. It's a chance in a million. Like I would have never even thought I would have gone to the local linker level and let alone the national, like, again, like just still sometimes I'm there and I, I can't even believe I'm there. So it's just, it's, <laughs> It was this like real 
family opportunity. And, and I had to talk to my husband and say, look, it's like, you're going to really have to step up on the weekends because I'm not going to be around and mm-hmm. I will, but, but then I'll have flexibility during the week. And so the way we negotiated at yes. work was I'm going to work a four day week. I'm going to work Thursday to Sunday. And that way, Monday, awesome. Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll have off. Thursday, I'll prep for the weekend and do any interviews or stories or research, or anything I need to do. And having that, like that three days off and that day to kind of get my head around everything and do the interviews yes. I want and the work I want to do was huge. And so I think they made it really lucrative in that way. And to me, it's not about money. It's about time and my mental health. It's about having mm-hmm. that. And if, if, if an employer can, can give me that, like that was like, there's no, it's a no brainer. And then I'm doing a job that I love that I still can't believe I'm doing. Like it just all kind of fell into place. So yeah. And it's been a year since I've been doing this job and I have learned so much and it is the best career decision I have ever made. Yeah. Going from local to national, I, I was doing local for 20 years. So I feel like I'm at a brand new job. Like I feel like I'm 20 again, <laughs> back in the same street, so excited about every little thing, every deployment, every every opportunity. It's just like, it's new and it's it's a different way to look at the world and it's a different way to interview and it's a different way to anchor. And and I love learning. I am, I'm somebody who just, I always want to learn. So I've learned so much in this past year and that to me has been worth everything. I would think the people that you're interviewing, you've interviewed heads of state and royalty mm-hmm. and celebrities and thought leaders. And I know you're probably asked this a million times, but is there someone that stands out where you just, you actually got excited and starstruck with? <sighs> no, it's not starstruck to me. It's more the conversations. Like when you forget mm-hmm. that you are doing an interview and you're just speaking, and I'm sure you get this because you interview people yeah. and you have these conversations and you're like, there could be no, this would be conversation would be happening if we were meeting for dinner or coffee. And we're both so into that conversation. And there's some certain ones like that, that have really, really stuck out to me. And I, one is with Julie Black. I, have you had her on your show? I've had her on the show twice. And I was about to mention, cause she was on your hashtag. First time I was born. That. Yeah. For, yes. And that was, you were both crying. We were both crying. And it's, you know, they say that you have to, as an interviewer, you have to be like this. And I just, I don't operate that way. Like I'm, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I have to, I mean, when you're, politics is one thing where obviously you're neutral, but, but when it comes to that, those kind of stories and people's stories, they just stick with me so deeply and I'm an empath. So it just, I can't separate. I just have those. And so those conversations like Julie, but then there are other people like there was a negotiator in Ukraine I spoke to that also was like, I had that kind I felt like that kind of, not the same energy, but it was like, I was like, he's being real with me and I'm being real with him. And, yes. and so there's things, there's people like that, that you have conversations with. And it's like, this is, this is amazing. Like that we're able to able to have that connection. And, and so those are the bad, I mean, I've so many celebrities, but it's not the same on a red carpet. You don't get that interaction. It's yeah. It's really cool to like meet Drake or Ryan Gosling. And you're like, Oh, this is what you look like in person or whatever. But it's, those aren't the ones that stick with me. It's those deep, right. meaningful, impactful connections that just, uh, I love. Was it fun doing that first interview with Justin Trudeau after the pandemic and sitting down with him? Like he's pretty cute. Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Farah Nasser when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. 
Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Hi, everyone. We're back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, and I'm here with Global Television's national anchor, Farah Nasser. We're having a delightful conversation. And I was just asking you, Farah, what it was like to sit down with Justin Trudeau for that first interview after the pandemic. It was nerve wracking. I mean, he there was one topic I really wanted to talk about, and that was the the law that Quebec has about hijabs. And, and I was really trying to get at him about that. And he wasn't budging about that he had any responsibility with that. And so it was challenging because I, I was like, we haven't, and, and that's an issue, for example, like we talked about the pandemic, of course, but that's an issue that I think a lot of anchors wouldn't bring up on a first interview with him. And, mm-hmm. and, and, but to me, I, I really believe, you know, that is discriminatory. And I think there's, mm-hmm. there, it's such mm-hmm. a, to me, it's a black and white issue. Whereas a lot of people see this gray area. I don't see it in that. So I wanted to really understand from him why he was okay with what was happening. Right. So, mm-hmm. and then later on, you know, it got brought up on the election on the campaign trail and that kind of thing. But I, I really, when I'm, doing interviews with people like him, I really try to look at what most people wouldn't talk to him about. And I try to find that right. thing. that's like, there's like a marginalized group of people who don't have access to him and they want to know this. And this is what my job is to get that from him, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was a, te- it was a bit of a tense interview at times, but yeah, it's always a, a privilege when you're sitting in front of the prime minister of the country and have that opportunity to ask him whatever you mm-hmm. want and have that time with him you know, whoever it is, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, I, I, I take that responsibility again, very seriously. It also takes confidence and you have it. And I'm wondering if you've always had it or if you've acquired it, but you've got it. And to ask those questions, you need confidence to do a lot of what you do. And I see it in you. You do. Yeah. So I'm I, don't wondering if I, if I don't know if it's something I, I think I have, like, I, you know, Naomi and I always talk about this. Like we still both have imposter syndrome. Like I still am always <laughs> in shock at what I'm doing or, you know, that people want to interview me for a podcast. It's still like, why? Like, I still, I think, don't see that side of myself. Like, I don't see it mm-hmm. like that. So I don't know if it's confidence or it's just, again, it's like that that idea that it's like, okay, well, I have this job to do and it's a really important job and not everybody gets to do it. So I have to ask and I have to, you know, but I think I've also That's gotten great. more confident in my 40s. Like, I think it's, and I think everybody gets like that when they're, the 40s are the best. They really are. And I'm sure the 50s are better. And I'm sure the 60s are even better. Right? I can't wait. Yes. Honestly, people are scared of me. It's all good. That part it's of all it, good. I cannot wait. Because it's a happy problem, right? It's a happy problem. Like a lot of people struggle with ageism, but it's like, this is, so you know, I just happier. became. You're so much more confident and you don't like. It, it's like, if people don't like me, my mom used to always say like, other people's opinions are none of your business. And I never understood what she meant by that. And now I get it. You know, it's like, yeah. they're going to think what they want and they can have that opinion. And that's cool. That's on them. You know, that's not anything to do mm-hmm. with me. 
So I love that feeling. And I think being on air is hard because people are always looking at you. They're examining you. They're zooming in on what you're doing and what you're wearing and how you look and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, it's like they can think what they want. I'm going to walk around and, and be how I want, you know, and so... Yeah, that part of me, I think, has has gotten more confident, and I, I've gotten so many so much hate mail over the years. Every person the public mm-hmm. eye has, and and now I get it, and it's like, okay, well, this person's having a bad day. It's not that mm-hmm. they think that I'm ugly or fat or whatever. They're just having a bad day, and they're just taking mm-hmm. it out on me. And I hope their day gets better. You know, that's so good. Yeah. That's so healthy. That is the way you, the way you have to do it. Yeah, no, that's that's incredible. I I want to talk a little bit about racism mm-hmm. and have, if you've had to deal with it, like I, I, I see it might be something your, your parents might've had to deal with, but did you have to deal with it? Yeah. Kids can be cruel sometimes. Yeah. And how did you combat it? So I think as a kid, I dealt with it, but I thought it was a totally normal thing. Like it wasn't something that I, I mean, it was, I was called packy and things like that. And it was very hurtful, mm-hmm. very, very hurtful. But I think as an adult, it became more impactful because I knew how wrong it was. And I think about people in my life who have said things like, like yesterday, I was in Yorkville for lunch and this woman came up to me and I had, my hair is naturally very curly and she was touching my hair and she's like, wow, she's like, you're such an exotic beauty. And it's like, and I know she meant it as like a very kind compliment. We were in the washroom. I'm sure she had had a little bit of wine and um, I hadn't. So I was just like, what is happening here? Um, but, <laughs> but it's, you know, it just reminds me sometimes that it's like people still don't understand. And again, they don't do, I don't think it's malicious at all, but it's very othering when you say something. It's ignorant. It's ignorant. ignorant. And it's, it's a very othering statement. Like, you know, I'm in this fancy restaurant. I don't normally go to Yorkville for fancy dinners, but lunches, but I did because somebody was in town. And then for a woman who probably is like, you know, old money, you know, to come up to me and, and say that it's just like, whoa, you know, you, you really don't have a big circle of people around you that, you know, right. Um, right. Or people who will say like, you know, you're extremely well raised, you know, and it's like, as opposed to what, like, what did you think? Right. Or oh, I had Lord. somebody who's in a very high position right now who said, oh yeah, you're brown. But if I was to scratch your skin, you're like us, you're white underneath, you know? So like things like that, where they think they're saying something and it's like, no, I'm so proud of who I am. I'm like, you're actually insulting me by saying something like that, you know? Yes. And proud of my identity and the fact that it still, it still exists. And, and then within, within minority communities, there's racism as well. Right. To other minority Mm -hmm. communities, which also is like, I don't understand. Like, why aren't we helping newcomers? Why don't we all come together? (laughs) So I think it's such a problem race. And I think with migration, which I think is one of going to be the one of the biggest issues we are going to be Mm -hmm. discussing in the next decade. I think it's going to get worse. I think it's going to get worse. Yeah. We've got to get on it. We've got to get on it and prevent the cold rather than cure it. Right. This is the perfect time to talk about your TEDx talk that I mentioned off the Mm -hmm. top called The Power of Intellectual Humility, which is brilliant, by the way. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And you start, and I want you all to listen and to to download it and check it out. It's amazing. But I love when you ask off the top. So let me ask you a tough question. Are you ignorant? And before you dismiss me and say no, ignorant doesn't mean rude. It just means you may make assumptions based on a lack of knowledge or awareness. So are you? And you say Think about it for just a sec. It's uncomfortable and you pause. Mm. I know. I just thought that was so brilliant. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the TED Talk, what inspired you to give it and what the reaction to it has been? Yeah, it was it was at a time where I was really confused. Like there was just so much polarization happening, right? And mm -hmm. people, even in my workplace, there was so much disagreement. It was around the Trump era um, mm -hmm. when people were like, and, and then there were some people who were Trump supporters and then there were people obviously who were not. And so I was also having a hard time kind of figuring out how I can like people that I don't agree with and <laughs> how, how to kind of teach them that we can all find common ground, that there is this common ground that we have to have and there, that we have to build bridges. Right. And so mm -hmm. that was, that was kind of the impetus of it. And I, it, it's based on a coworker of mine who no longer works with us, but who was like, still to this day sends me like disinformation and all kinds of stuff, but he, he's was such a nice guy, you know? And yes. I really had a hard time. Cause I'm like, I, I don't agree with this guy. He said some really racist things to me. Like he said some really horrible things to me, but he's, he doesn't even think he is saying it and he doesn't understand. He thinks he doesn't see color, like all these crazy things, you know? And, but I'm like, but he's so nice to me too. And I, I couldn't kind of, <laughs> find that. And it's funny. I see that with my kids, right? Where kids see like a good guy or a bad guy. There's no, you know, middle ground. And right. I was having a hard mm -hmm. time seeing that middle. Yes. People can be both. There can be layers to people's personalities and their, there's their past that informs their future. And I was kind of learning about that. So that was the impetus for the talk. And I think if we can yeah. all be a little bit more humble and as I mentioned, be a don't know it all, I think their world would be a better place. And you did a brilliant thing. You invited him out for lunch. Mm. And that was brave. And that was really cool. And you're probably going, what am I doing? Why am I totally. doing this? But you had food to talk about on the way to the restaurant. Yeah. You had things to talk about. And then it ended up, he even helped you with the talk. Yeah. So after like, that, just 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 talk. He was shocked. He was like, me? Like, why would you? you know? <laughs> and then we worked on the ending together. And he just, he was like, yeah, it, it was, it was amazing. But he, again, like super nice guy, but definitely it says very problematic things that upset me. Right. So, right. you know, you have to, yeah. But, but I, like I educated him. Like I remember telling him my son was in hockey and he was like, oh, what's that like? Like he must be the only Brown kid in, in like in hockey. And I remember oh, being Lord. like, uh, he plays for Don Mills. Like he, like he's the, <laughs> there's like one white kid there. Like well, they're all Brown. Kids. Like, yeah. Like you know, BIPOC. And so he was shocked that like little brown kids play hockey. Like it just, you know, those kind of little things that you're, you're like, no, I, I'm going to teach you something now, you know, I'm going to open your mind right. a little bit, you know? So, and Naomi and but I, that's the way, yeah. No, I was going to say that's the way to get over to get over ignorance is to is to educate, yeah. right? We need people need education, whether it's a lunch or a lecture or a talk or a TED talk or you being on the air. But go ahead, yeah, no, I'm just say saying, Naomi, Naomi and you. again, her being Jewish, me being Muslim, and whenever oh. there's you know a flare up with what happens there, it, it's tough enough on our friendship because we we try to explain mm -hmm. to each other the other point of view, and it's hard, and we've gotten into some arguments about it, like you know where we hadn't spoken for like a couple of days where it's been like, we need, we both need some time, but I think you have to do that difficult work, right? Like you have to do that work to kind of self-reflect, reflect on the other person's point of view and what they've gone through and what their background, how that informs them, yeah. you know, and you have to, I think we could all be a little bit kinder and more patient with each other. Yeah. And I think maybe by doing it in that microcosm way, you can do it in the macro way, Absolutely. right? It's almost like you guys solving things together can end up being a template and a blueprint for how we can solve things in the world. Absolutely. So it's really pretty, pretty incredible. 
You have so many accolades, including being named one of the members of the board of directors for the very prestigious Canadian Journalism Foundation. As an award-winning journalist and anchor educator at Ryerson, the board has a mission of promoting excellence in journalism. And to be named a member of this board is very powerful stuff. Just briefly, what was it like when you found out that you were given this appointment? I was I was floored. I was so thankful. And uh, Natalie Turvey, who heads up the foundation, I had done some work for her, like just little things, speaking and that kind of thing. And yeah, when she called me to be part of it, to be on this esteemed board with all these like heads of organizations and industry and leaders, that was really a, a goosebump moment where it was like, mm-hmm. me? Really? There's so many issues that I'm so passionate about that the board is, again, has like connections and is, and is really, really doing important, difficult work on. And to be part of that is just, it was, it was terrific. That's so awesome. You're the celebrated ambassador of Plan Canada. What's important to you about doing this work? I think it's work, work about women and girls. Uh, one thing that I'm, I'm passionate about that I talk to them about, and I want to do some work on this, and I don't know how yet, but it's about menstruation and period yeah. poverty. And it's something, again, we don't talk about this enough. And, you know, we talk about equality a lot when it comes to women uh, and men, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about equity. Like there is a time mm-hmm. of the month that we all really suffer. And then when you go through menopause, it's life-changing. I mean, women leave their careers because of it. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. just, yeah. we don't talk yeah. about it. It's just a thing that's like, okay, this is happening for women. They're literally leaving. They're, they're women at the top of their field at that time. And so yes. I think we need to talk a lot more about our biology, about what, what happens to us. And there needs yes. to be some sort of equity formula. There's places that give days off for periods in the world, um, countries that have kind of figured this out and said, no, this is not fair. We cannot be treated the same way as men that mm-hmm. don't experience this like week that's so different from any other week, you know? And absolutely. Um, so anyway, that, that's important to me. Then of course, thing, it, things around uh, gender equity around the world, which plan is, uh, that's what plan does and international day of the girl. And so I'm very excited to be involved in that. You're often asked to uh, host galas and charity events, and you're very, very big about giving back. I think you're a very outward focused person. I know you're a humanitarian, a big humanitarian, and even Naomi confirmed that because I had that sense. And she said very, very much so. That's really who you are at your essence. What is so important to you about giving back? To be honest, I think it's really part of my religion. Like I, I'm Muslim and one of the tenets of our faith is that you live in this earth, but you have, you give back. You don't just, you're a steward. Like you're not, it's not yours. This is all not mine. There is, there is a higher power out there and you have to be part of helping others, bringing others up, no matter Muslim, non-Muslim, whoever they are, you are not here just to be you right? You're here to help others that are not as fortunate as you. And, and to be in, in positions of you know privilege, you really have to take that into account. So to me, it's not like, it's not just doing something. It's literally ingrained in who I am because of, hmm. because of my religion and my background. And my parents, hmm. when we were, we have this thing called Seva, which is giving back. And my parents will always say, huh. like, that's what it's called. And so they always say, never say no to Seva. If you can do seva, never say no. And that's how I've operated my whole life. Like you don't say no to that. If you have a chance to help somebody, you help them. If you can't, obviously, and there's constraints and you have kids and there's stuff, whatever, it's changed a bit with my life now. But but if there is something I can do for somebody, I will do it. I will never say no. 
That's awesome. That's just so awesome. You have a passion for traveling. You've instilled that in your mm-hmm. children, taking them to many regions in North and South America, Asia, Europe. And what I found fascinating is I heard you turn off your cell phones yes. and you turn off and unplug everything, all social media, which for a newswoman is pretty cool, yeah. pretty unbelievable. And I have to ask you, one, how do you do it? Because I struggle with that. And two, what led you to that choice? I just found that I was like looking at things through a, a square Instagram lens when I was on vacation. <laughs> Everything was like, what's going to make a good picture? And I'm like, this is not healthy. I'm not on vacation. <laughs> and who am I sharing my story with? Like, do they even deserve to know about my vacation? They probably don't. Like, so I think I, I came to that realization when the kids were really little. It was our first trip, big trip with them. We went to Portugal like a long time ago, maybe eight years ago or something, seven years ago. And, um, and that trip, I was like, I'm just going to turn everything off. And I literally just turned the phone off. I had free data and that kind of thing. I was like, I'm not going to even use anything, but it's like, I ghost everyone, but in the best possible way, because I need it for my own sanity. So vacation, it's off completely. You cannot get a hold of me. And unless it's your birthday, I'll call you. But besides <laughs> that, you're not going to get a hold of me. And then even during the week, like I, I'm not tied to my phone as much as probably most journalists are. You know, I know it's. Are you a big reader? Are you a big reader for, in addition? To, I yeah, am. yeah, I am. The best, the best. Yeah, so, so good. That's, that's another a- thing. Yeah. But I self care is so important for me. Can I get a little superficial for a moment yeah. and say that you always look so beautiful oh, on camera. You're always so well-dressed and you look beautiful and beautifully put together. The camera loves you. What is it like dressing for global? Is it still fun? And what is involved in putting your wardrobe together? Okay, well, I have one of my best friends <laughs> is my stylist. So Nareen Kasim, she's amazing. So she does like, she, she picks everything. She sends it to me online. Like she'll like share it with me on text and then I'll buy it because she knows what my body, what looks good. The interesting thing, actually, it's a really like thing, something that I've really kind of been working with in my mind. So news anchors wear suits, right? Like that's the thing. You wear a suit, you got to wear a jacket. I know at work, they, they love when I wear jackets, but it's not me. I'm not somebody who enjoys wearing suits. I feel very constricted. I don't like it. So to me, mm-hmm. like a, a nice work dress is like yes. my jam. I feel so comfortable. Exactly. I'm wearing one right now. I just was I love it. I love what you're wearing. Can, like, I add, can I ask you what you're wearing? Is it a thing or is it, is it, it can we know where we can get a dress oh, like this? Boss. It's like a, okay. yeah, and it's just like a <laughs> meaty length, like, like maybe boat neck kind of very simple. I don't wear a lot of jewelry, very little. And I just, I like feeling comfortable. Like I, I feel, and I feel so comfortable in dresses like this and not in, not in suits and not like Mm -hmm. all done up. And, and I just, um, Mm -hmm. and the other thing is like, you'll see a lot of anchors who are straight lines, right. That are, you know, just Mm -hmm. to, but I'm very feminine. So sometimes I'll have like flouncy sleeves and I just, I like dressing that way. So I used to try to mold myself to look like what anchors are supposed to look like. And the, the anchors of like, you know, the era before, but even now that are on air now, and now I just kind of do my thing, whatever makes me feel comfortable, I'll wear when I'm comfortable. Then I can be myself. I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing. And I just kind of go on from there, but I'm, I'm very lucky. I have a stylist who is 
who's one of my very best friends, has known, have, has known my style since I was nine years old and knows what I like and what I don't like and <laughs> to put it all together. That's fabulous. Well, it works. It's working. It's fabulous. You're involved in Power of Movement Canada's largest yoga fundraiser. You can be found doing yoga all over Toronto. I'm also a yoga person and a meditation person. Can you tell us what you love about yoga? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I wish I could tell you that I practice yoga regularly these days. I don't. I do more Pilates now, but I do do meditation. I do meditate a lot. I will meditate. If I'm having a bad day, I will go in my dressing room at work and I will just meditate and I will just um, turn the lights off and I will sometimes put a guided meditation if I really need one or I don't. And it just helps me so much. It changes my whole day. So good. So good. I I mean, it's, I I get that so much. That's a big part of my life as well. I want to say you're so talented at what you do. You could have gone to the States and made 10 times as much money but you didn't. You chose to stay here. What have been the benefits of staying and living in Canada? My parents, having having my friends and my parents, my like to me, the relationship between children and grandparents was so important. I was very close to taking a very high profile job in San Francisco. And um, that would have, again, like you said, paid a lot of money. And then we found out we were pregnant with twins. And I didn't take it because I wanted my kids to be around grandparents. I had that experience and I wanted that for them. And it's being the, the, seeing my parents with my kids is the be, like the biggest blessing of my life. Like it really is. It, it's making me tear up because I just became a grandmother for no the first time way. yesterday. <laughs> my son and daughter-in-law oh, just had I'm a beautiful so baby boy. <laughs> so, so thank you, thank you. I've been sort of like just uh, it, it's like falling in love all over again. I'm sure. Feeling. I'm so, sure. Oh my god. So it's uh, awesome. What is bliss for Farah Nasser? Hmm. <sighs> It's being with the people that I love the most and that I can be myself around. And it's also being alone, being proud of myself, looking in the mirror and feeling like you did well and you're, li- you're, you're living up to your values and you're living up to your full potential in life and you're fulfilling what you were put on earth to do. So I think that's, that to me is bliss. Wow. And, and also like, just having authentic conversations. Like my favorite part of the job is interviewing and having conversations and meeting people like this and just having connections. It's just, it's, it brings me so much happiness, so much energy, so much energy. Yeah. You're what this show is all about. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Judy. It was a pleasure. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media, website? Yeah. I think probably through Twitter or Instagram is a good way, I think to, yeah. So Farnoster on Twitter and Farnoster Global. I, I don't check it all the time, but it's it's a good way to get hold of me. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Farah Nasser, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, Olivia Weatherall, Juliana Yanuziello, Lauren Kaminsky, Sierra Brown Rodriguez, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Lee Brack, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.